Hello, hello, hello. Uh, my name is Wally. If I have not met you yet, uh, I'm teaching pastor for Walker Harbor and thrilled to be with you all uh, this morning. Um, we are in the midst of, at the very beginning of, we'll spend all of 2022 in the Gospel of Matthew, so the Gospel book of Matthew as it's known. And then being that we're going to walk through Matthew, there, there are, um, there's a rhythm to it, but there are also, you'll, you'll see as you read through it, there are different sections, there are themes and so we kind of break it up in order that we'll go from the beginning to the end, but break them into themes and do basically series within a series. We'll spend all of 2022 in Matthew, but they also have these little sub-series. So this one we're in, uh, which is just the week two of, is we're calling Renew. And so we're looking at all these just little things, and this morning we're going to look at a, a, the idea of a whole new community. We have watched Jesus be born, if you will. That's where we began this thing. You have the birth narrative, and then you have the movement of Jesus becoming an adult, which we miss all kinds of stuff that is not in the text. But then when he comes and is preparing to step out, there is uh, the baptism, Jesus' baptism, which is where the Father, where God says to him, I love you, not because of anything you've done, said. There's nothing at that point that Jesus has done to earn or win or garner some sort of thing from God, but he just says, I love you because you are my son. And then that will send Jesus um, through the Spirit, is what we looked at last week, being led into the wilderness, the desert, the Judean desert, where he'll spend 40 days, 40 nights being tested, tempted. But essentially, you get to, we get to watch Jesus in the midst of face things that we face every day, temptations, three temptations that are basically before us. And Jesus succeeds where the Israelite, the Hebrew people uh, in, from the Old Testament all the ways in which they failed are kind of the key ways in which they failed where they were not faithful. Jesus is invited into those same temptations, and he succeeds where they fail. And you see Jesus undoing what was done uh, or redoing uh, what will be. Uh, so it's a beautiful thing. So we're going to continue on in that in Matthew. And, and so I'd love to pray, and then we will uh, jump in. We've got, uh, as, as would be the case, a lot to dig into this morning. So it'll be uh, lots of fun. Gracious God, we bless you for this time to gather as your body, the church that we can take a deep breath. Uh, we can calm our hearts and uh, hear now, God, um, it is my hope that our hearts would be open, soft, moldable, pliable, uh, and our minds open to what you have for each one of us here this morning and us collectively as your body, the church, uh, that you would speak in as you do, that you would lead, guide, that you would invite us into your ways and that we would follow. Gracious God, may the meditation, the posture of my heart and the words of my mouth bring honor and glory to you and you alone, our Lord, our rock, and our Savior. I pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so week two of this series, um, Matthew, now this is really important as we jump in, uh, if you have not been with us or uh, if you just need a reminder when we jump into the text, what I often say is 
context, context, context. We want to dig into the context, that which is around, underneath uh, the Scriptures, because they're going to fill in a lot of gaps, and which is true this morning as well. Uh, Matthew has structured his gospel. He structured his narrative of Jesus to show how it mirrors the life of Moses in many ways. There is a way in which the gospel of Matthew is structured to show that it mirrors Moses in many ways of um, his life being born, but then leading the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. We see these movements in Matthew, and so he's trying to show you Jesus is the new Moses leading a new exodus, but this this exodus is much bigger, much wider than what Moses did because this is going to include, invite all of creation into this. So that's kind of where we're at. And we're going to begin in uh, chapter 4, verse 12 is where we had left off. We got through 11 last week, so we begin here. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Carfarnaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zabulon and Nephalim, to fulfill what was said. Through, see, and I just wrecked it because you're like, what? What are those words? Yeah, that's how they're pronounced. It just really messes you up, isn't it? I love that. I just was digging in and I'm like, well, that's not at all how we good Americans say Capernaum, Nazareth, Zebulon. Naphtali, well, no. Nazareth, Kafar, Naum, Zabulon, and Nephalim. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. We're going to get to the prophet Isaiah in just a moment. But first, what Matthew has done without explanation, and what's interesting is he will not explain this whole bit of John. All of a sudden, we get this thing of John got sent into prison, but there's nothing about it like, really? Why? What's going on here? He won't tell us the details until chapter 14. But just in short, so we get it, what happened is John told Herod Antipas, Herod Antipas is one of the sons of Herod the Great, uh, who ruled two regions of Israel, he, John said to him, you have married your brother Philip's ex-wife, and that is not okay. And so John gives it to him. Herod Antipas doesn't want to hear anyone tell him how he can or can't live. And so his idea is, I would like to actually off John, be done with him, execute him. But the people love John, so we can't do that, so we're just going to shove him in prison for the time being. So that's in short what has happened is Herod Antipas has John put in prison. So, you know, Matthew just mentions it here in a blip. So next, Jesus is going to leave his hometown of Nazareth and head to his, now begin his public ministry, which he does 90% plus of his public ministry in the region of the Galilee, around the Lake of Galilee. We often call it the Sea of Galilee. It's not really much of a sea. It's very much a lake. Um, you can see right across for it. Also known as Lake Tiberias. It's with, and then he says he's going to make his home in then Kafar Naum. And in that place, though, it's likely that he just has a room at Peter's house is where he will live, if you will. He's kind of got a bed there is about what it will be. 
And so uh, we'll go a map first just to get an idea of the region. If you're in Israel, uh, more of the northern part of Israel, you have the Galilee region. region. You have Nazareth there, um, Cana right next to it. That's where Jesus will do his first miracle when we get into that turning water into wine. But you then see over here the Lake of Galilee, uh, Lake Tiberias. Tiberias is the largest city in that region, which it's a Roman city. And then you have Magdala. Magdala is actually the wealthiest um, and largest fishing village. So it's not that it's big, but it is the largest of all these little fishing villages and the wealthiest. Uh, in part, some of in part is because they uh, work with salt and do things with salting fish. And uh, we'll talk a bit about that, or Sarah will, in a couple weeks. Um, but it's really interesting how, so you have this fishing industry. Uh, and then uh, what is known as the religious triangle, Kafar, Naum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. You see that little triangle piece. And so this is where Jesus spends most of his public ministry in this region. And then uh, he is quoting, Matthew is going to quote the prophet Isaiah, and we get this in Matthew 4, 15 to 16. Land of Zabulon and land of Nephalim, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, Matthew is quoting the Hebrew prophet Isaiah, which read in the wider context. So just here's a Bible study thing. When it's quoting there, and we just read it, and you go, okay, so that's what Isaiah said. Go to Isaiah, and don't just read what Matthew is quoting, but go backwards and start earlier and say, what is happening within this context? What is Isaiah the prophet doing? Because this will be important. Uh, we'll go and look at it. Because Matthew, using this one quote, is actually offering us a universe-sized claim about who Jesus is and what he is up to. Because ancient writers didn't quote for the listener and reader just to get the quote. They would understand, they would expect that the Hebrew, the Jewish listener, reader, would also start filling in the gaps. They would read in their mind, they would back up, and they would go, what was said before this and what was said after this? Because they knew the scriptures well, and they would walk it out. Matthew would expect his readers to be doing that work in their minds. So after the phrase we just read, which is actually Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, He's going to continue with what Matthew would expect his audience then to be doing in their head and saying, this is what Jesus is up to, which is this. So Isaiah chapter 9, verses 3 through 7 then. Continuing on. This is what it's saying about the coming one. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Do not miss that. This thing that's happening, we are now taking, he's using war images and saying, that's not going to happen anymore. Soldiers' boots, soldiers' garments, we don't need that. You can put that in the fire, you can roll this stuff up. For to us, and then this might sound a bit familiar around the Christmas season, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
and the government shall be on his shoulders. A whole new way of doing things is going to be through and on this one. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Something much, much bigger is going on here. If you are listening to this, Jesus making this announcement, saying this, and you're reading this, this would grab the listener by the tunic, just shake them. Their heart would be like, "Woo! we see what's going on here. We, We would feel something like a hope of something true and lasting. A much bigger revolution is happening. And that would be the word they would use. A revolution is on the move. And it's happening in and through Jesus announcing this. Now, there's a prayer that the Jewish people would recite at least twice a day, acknowledging and proclaiming trust in the one who is the true God who will rule with justice and righteousness, those key words, and who are going to rescue all people, these people, from oppression. They would say this prayer For thousands of years, this prayer has been said, and so I would love it if you would stand with me, if you are able, and we will recite this heart prayer together, which has been said for thousands of years that they would do that. We will start in Hebrew, as they would have said it and read it, and still do to this day, and then we'll move on to the English. So if you just want to repeat after me, Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ichad, Ve'ahavta, Et Adonai, Eloecha, Bocho, Levavka, Uvocho, Navshaka, Uvocho, Meodecha, Ve'ahavta, Le'reacha, Kamocha, Amin. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. This prayer, they they would be on the lips. They would understand that this is what is happening now. We have been praying for this. We have been anticipating this. So now as the narrative continues, the next movement, and it's a movement, Jesus is now going to speak a very audacious invitation to people. And it's uh, chapter 4, verse 17. Jesus now says this, From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Here we go. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, to the original here, this is an ear-splitting, heart-rattling pronouncement. 
Yet I would argue that today's reader, we tend to just fly by this. Yeah, 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 repent. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Or we simply don't understand the gravitas of such a statement. First, Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. Throughout Matthew, you'll see kingdom of heaven, wherein the other gospel writers typically use the phrase kingdom of God. Now, saying heaven instead of God was a regular Jewish way of avoiding the the term God out of reverence and respect. So, it's kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, yep. Secondly, we need to address what this whole idea of kingdom means and what it doesn't mean. And so, to do that, I would love for us to dance with the foremost New Testament scholar, Nicholas Tom Wright, also known as N.T. Wright, also known as Tom Wright by his colleagues, or his friends, we call him T-dubs. Uh, just you know, I don't meet him. But Tom Wright, just so you know, foremost New Testament scholar in our world today, will be at Calvin University January 21. Uh, he will be speaking about a new commentary he's written on the letter to the Galatians. And so Sarah and I will be there for sure. Uh, we'd love to. It's free. It's part of the January series at Calvin University. And so we would love to go and hang out with Tom. Now, Tom, speaking on this whole idea of kingdom of God, says this, we must clear out of our minds any thought that kingdom of heaven means a place, namely heaven, seen as the place where God's people go after their death. That, after all, would make no sense here. How could this sort of kingdom be said to be approaching, come near, or arriving? And any first century Jew hearing someone talking about God's kingdom or the kingdom of heaven would know this meant revolution. So the kingdom of heaven is not a place somewhere else at some other time. Rather, it's the rule and reign of God that is in the present Jesus transforming all things. That's what's happening now. It is not complete, but it's beginning there. They would not go, oh yeah, place somewhere else after we die. No. Jesus was announcing this revolution has come near. It's beginning now through him. Now, I have a friend who she says one of the main reasons she can't do Christianity is because people are so after-death focused and miss out living in the present. She's like, I just can't do it. People just don't actually pay attention. And she said, really, a lot of Christianity, what she sees is, uh, the way I would call it, is they just treat it as whack-a-mole conversion. All we have is we have some time to go around and try and whack-a-mole people into saying a prayer or doing this until we get out of here. And how many times, like, my wife and I have had a conversation, we're like, what? No, it's not what the Scripture says. I, I, I get that we've pitched some odd things, which we'll get to a bit more uh, as we talk about this, uh, because we'll dig in some more. But another daily prayer that the Hebrew people prayed and continue again through today is known as the Kaddish, which in its ancient form begins like this. Exalted and hallowed be his great name. May he cause his kingdom to reign. Now, two things. First, some of you might be going, that sounds an awful lot like the beginning of what we call the Lord's Prayer. 
which we will dive into. We've got about a month. About a month from now, we'll jump into that, which is great. But this whole idea, and, and it oftentimes is referred to as the mourner's Kaddish, or Kaddish, the morning a morning Kaddish prayer because it's about mourning. It's a lot of times around suffering and death. And so it's often, it is pitched as looking forward to the future. And what Jesus is doing is borrowing from that prayer in order to drag the future into the present. That which you've been praying for and hoping for is beginning here now in what I am saying and doing. It's that shocking. It would be just a jolt to the soul. These people would be like, wow, this is a stunning announcement that Jesus is doing. They, those listening would immediately go, something much bigger is going on here. Do you see when we read it, we're like, yep, 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 okay, okay, okay. The original, they'd be like, what is happening right now? What is this guy doing, announcing, saying such a massive statement and invitation? is what he is doing. And here's why. The Hebrew people were familiar with the book of Daniel, where in chapter 2, Daniel is speaking with the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, and he's interpreting a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had about the idea of kingdoms who will reign and how there will be a fourth kingdom in this line of kingdoms that are talked about. And this fourth kingdom is going to come along and crush all the others. Now, the first century listener, so the first century listener, the Jewish people, many of them believed that, oh, they've been reading it. They've been watching it, and they would say, Rome is now ruling. Rome is that fourth empire. That's how they would hear this. Oh, yeah, Rome's got this thing going now. So Daniel chapter 2, verse 39 and 40, we'll get a, a glimpse of this. After you, and this is Daniel talking to King Nebuchadnezzar, after you, another kingdom will arise, but it'll be inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. But then Daniel sees an even bigger kingdom. Verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. And then we ask the question, who does Daniel see as inaugurating or leading this kingdom into being? Chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was what? One like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, metaphor, because we all literalize it. Oh, he's, here comes Jesus, sea-doing on the clouds. Uh, nope. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, Jesus was born about 60 years after the kingdom of Rome had begun its domination and rule. Before this, before Rome, there was Alexander the Great and Greek, the, the Greece ruling, and they conquered the Persian Empire, who conquered the Babylonian Empire. See, now we're up to four. 
So the Jewish people were waiting and looking forward to a coming revolution, but we want a final revolution, one that's going to take all of these, these empires out. But how this revolution, and this is so important, how this revolution operates, how then it crushes others, is dramatically different than the violent revolutions that they had experienced. And sadly, what most of the people were looking for, oh, where's the king going to come riding in with his massive military that is going to take them out? That's what we're looking for. And in that, they miss Jesus. So Rome had installed Herod the Great first and then his sons after him as puppet rulers for Caesar and Rome. Caesar's ruling from Rome. The Jewish people then were not fuzzy at all about how violent empire works. So going all the way back to the exile in Babylon, the Hebrew people had been praying, waiting, and dreaming about rescue, about a revolution where God would be king finally and forever. But to think that it would come in the same vein as all the previous revolutions would to be working from a shriveled imagination of the divine, which people did then and people do today. Shriveled imagination. Okay, where's this big, massive military, let's take it all out kind of thing? Because Jesus comes on the scene announcing a profoundly different, counterintuitive, countercultural revolution. It's upside down to the way that things work. Many people missed it then, and many people miss it today. Fight fire with fire is the common response. Just get a bigger army with more weapons. But that has been done to death, pun included. Yep, pun is very intended there. Because fighting and killing, to put an end to fighting and killing, is nonsense. To say that the difference in what you are doing is that you are doing it in the name of God is blasphemous nonsense, says N.T. Wright. Oh, we're going to do that. We're just doing it in the name of God. He's like, that's blasphemy. Your violence. So we have already seen in Matthew up to this point, and we'll be continued to be reminded all throughout the gospel how the divine does not obliterate darkness. Rather, the divine shines light into the darkness, creating peace out of chaos. The artist creates boundaries around darkness, but does not obliterate it. The word used here to describe what it means to move away from the whole idea of fighting fire with fire, to move away from the common way of the world, is the word repent. But this is another word that's misunderstood and misused. Repent is not about feeling bad about oneself. Have you heard someone shout, say, you need to repent, and immediately you go, oh, I need to feel bad about myself, feel bad about what I did. But this is not about feeling bad Repent is the Greek word metanoia, and it's the Hebrew word teshuva, and it means it's, it's not about feelings, it's about action. Repent means to change one's mind, to change direction in which you are going, to turn or return to God. It's an action, repent is. It's not how you feel, but what you do that matters. 
Now, as identifying as an Enneagram 4, and if you're like, the what? An Enneagram 4, high feelings. Me, like, I hear this, and then we live in a hypersensitive, everything's offensive culture. To hear things, this is not about feelings, this is about action, we go, well, that sounds kind of like kooky talk. Like, that's a bit rough. But Jesus was declaring the rule and reign of heaven has come near. It's in your midst. It's in front of you. Those who are apathetic or simply waiting to feel like moving better get to the sidewalk because justice and peace are roaring down the road. Those who have twisted justice and and disturbed peace will be confronted and asked, repent, because a new way is before you. A new way is here. You need to turn from that way and turn toward or return to the divine. That is to turn from the dark side and turn to the way of the Jedi. That's what I wrote for my message at Comic-Con. But it still fits. It's kind of like that anyways. We're there. Some of you are awake and... I mean, they go together. Anyways, whoops. As we keep reading... Jesus will move from announcing and proclaiming the coming arrival of a universe-wide movement to now calling people to learn the ways of this movement. So now what we do is we have this movement, a movement needs a people. So now we move on in the scripture and Jesus calls a people. So verse 18, verse 22, as Jesus is walking along beside the Sea of Galilee around this lake, he's walking around these fishing villages, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, which doesn't happen until later, like how Matthew writes that in and we're like, really, he's called Peter? Um, And his brother Andrew, they were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, Follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. That's weird. (laughs) Do you hear that? And you go, yeah, it sounds normal. But contextually, we'll get there. This is a really key phrase, what he is saying to them, though. It's really fascinating. And one, at, at once, they left. Ooh, that's an ant. That's another one. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Now, hang on to that phrase because it's important, the whole fishermen thing. Now, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, to me, I put cue John Williams' thundering orchestra. The scene is set. We capped it. Woo! Soundtrack. coming. But... Here's where it's really important. Within the text, the context is going to bring so much because the main point of this is within the context. But let's just sit and look at that text. Does it say, follow me and I'll take you out of this world? It says, follow me and I will send you into this world. This is not about being saved from creation. This is about being saved for a new creation. You see that difference? Jesus is saying, I'm saving you for the new thing I am doing, that you would go into the world. I'm not taking you out of it. It's not semantics. It's a much 
needed shift in theology, especially in America, and we need that more than ever. We're not getting out of here. Here is being renewed. The foundation of this text is simply buried in the context, and it's the mind-bending reality that the people Jesus called seem like the most unlikely people. He is starting a revolution, and he just went and called four fishermen. What's going on here? The very fact that Jesus is calling them is upside down to the way in which the entire Jewish education system worked. So now, I have done a deep dive in this before. I don't know with Walker Harbor if we have. We're not going to do a deep dive into the education system. I'm going to give you a really brief overview, but it'll paint the context enough. So real quick, we'll start with Bet Safer. Go ahead and say Bet Safer means house of the book. This is where schooling started for the, and, and does for Jewish people at the age of five. Between one and like birth and four years old, you're hearing scripture constantly being told. But at the age of five, you begin school and what you do is you memorize Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Memorized in age five to nine. You learn it. You embody it. You memorize it. Then you move on to Bet Talmud, which means house of learning. This is from age 10 to 12, approximately. The focus was on studying oral interpretations of the Torah, and then you memorize the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament. While also in this time, you begin to learn your family trade, because for most, this is where school ends, at the age of 12. But can you imagine 12-year-olds today having the whole Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, memorized? They would. No problem. They say even today to find a kid who doesn't know memorized Torah and then the writings of the prophets in the history, they go, oh, to find that would be so rare to find a kid that doesn't know it. They would memorize it. Why? Because we have our Bibles. They did not have that. Maybe at best, maybe at best by the time of Jesus, there might be a scroll or scrolls per village. They would do public readings. And the only way for you to know Scripture is to do what then? Memorize it. So it's in you because you don't get to pick it up and read it whenever you want, so you memorize it. Uh, being in Israel, one of the, my favorite things in Israel is just going around when we're in Israel and seeing people. You'd see people all the time walking, and it looks like they're talking to themselves. You always see them, they're walking in the room. And, they, and, and there's usually a walk with a bit of a rhythm. They're memorizing. Right now, they're going over what they learned that morning, and they're saying it over and over, and they're doing it with a cadence. We would go into mealtime, and we would sit at our meals, and there would be, they'd be sitting at their table, and a lot of them are rocking in their seat while they're eating, they're rocking and they're saying scripture. They're sitting there and they're just constantly memorizing, even though they have scrolls today, memorizing the text. Now, this is going to end school for most of them, and then they're going to go off and do the family business for a lot of them. But those who are kind of the best of the best, who are really learning and they're the exceptional students, they move on to Bet Midrash, which is house of study. Bet Midrash is 13 years old and up. Secondary school, is what, which was typically only for the advanced students, here a student would seek out a rabbi and ask to study as his Talmudim, which means disciple. 
a student would go to a rabbi, seek out a rabbi and say, can I be, be your Talmudim? They would seek them out. Basically, will you mentor me? Can I learn from you? In Bet Midrash, though, you would learn how to make rabbinic interpretations. Now you've memorized the text, you've learned it, now you're going to learn how to interpret it and do your own yoke to provide your own set of teaching. At 18, you enter the bride chamber at age 18. Bride chamber, we'll have to do an unpacking of that sometime. It's really fascinating the way Jesus does this. We won't go there now. At age 20, you would pursue a vocation. And at age 30, the most exceptional student would be given authority to teach others. Very, very, very few people could become a teacher or a rabbi. So through this system, you would know very clearly by the time you hit a teenager, you would know whether or not you have what it takes to keep moving on. Or you would hear something similar to uh, a rabbi say to you. When you go to them and say, can I be your Talmudim? They might say something like this to you. It's clear you love God. Clear you love God. But at this time, you do not have what it takes to be my Talmudim. Go now and ply your family, family trade. You don't have what it takes to do what I do. I don't believe you have the knowledge to follow, so I need you to go now and ply your family trade. Most of them heard this. So when Jesus, when we find Jesus here walking along the lake and calling these two sets of brothers who are fishermen, fishermen, it tips us off. James and John are with their dad. What are they doing? Family business. They're doing the work of their family. They either are taking over the business or they're working in the family business, which tells us the system has determined they are not enough. They're not smart enough, they're not good enough to continue on. The system has said they're not enough, so why is Jesus calling them? The system says Jesus should go find the best and the brightest, correct? Unless that's Jesus' entire point. Calling the less than in the eyes of the world to be a new community for the new world that he is ushering in. We don't find Jesus tucked into the safety of some synagogue waiting for the best to come to him. He is going into the world, into a podunk fishing village, and calling a mishmash of humanity to follow him. Jesus actually trusts that these common, basic, normal, not good enoughs can move the eternal kingdom of God forward. He sees that in them. That's why they follow Jesus, because he sees them and sees into them the way the system does not. The system tests whether or not someone is enough, smart enough, good enough, strong enough, talented enough, or pure enough. But this teacher, this rabbi, this son of man is calling them to be his students. That's why they follow. Because in the simple invitation, follow me, Jesus sees into them and sees them in a way they have not be, been seen before. 
He is communicating, I believe in you. It's not because he was glowing, you know, opposed to our art that we often see, not because he was glowing or floating or has a a golden halo alighted above him. It's because he chooses them in love is why they follow him. Their whole desire, when they're a little kid, I just want to keep on in this. I would love to be a rabbi. My whole goal is to learn Torah and be able to follow a rabbi. That is their dream. And they're found fishing. And then this rabbi comes to them and says, follow me. They weren't abandoning their dad, Zebedee, James and John. Their dad would have been like, did you hear that, boys? He just called you. Go. I'm so proud. I'm going to go home and tell your mom, you are going to follow a rabbi. Dad would have been weeping. Not like, hey, get back here. You're not done with your chores. He would have been like, ah. My boys were called by a rabbi. History tells us there are only two rabbis that called students. One of them here. The rest of you go to a rabbi and ask if you can be in. Now, it would seem like a ridiculous amount of work to take and train some fishermen to be strong, capable soldiers leading an army that will defeat all other armies unless this kingdom doesn't operate in such a way by a massive military with the biggest and strongest weapons wielded by the biggest and strongest people, which we are tipped off to by the phrase, sending them out to fish for people. He doesn't say, come follow me and I'll teach you how to wield weapons. Uh, Come follow me and I'll send you into the world for relationship, to connect with people, and you will show them what this kingdom is about. Jesus doesn't call them to be something that they're not. He calls them to become what they have always been at their foundation. Humans, not war machines. This is not about working harder than others. It's not about being the most skilled. It's not about political persuasion. It's not military might. It's not social status. It's not economic status. It's not race. It's not gender. It's not membership qualifications. It is Jesus sees into them to the very core. And yes, Jesus is going to pour into these disciples, but far more than that, he is going to draw out of them that which has always been within them, which is the image of the divine. Jesus calling a perceived mishmash of humanity to extend the kingdom of heaven project has always been the divine plan. Jesus is simply calling out what has always been within. Now, to drive this home, what really registered with me is uh, uh, theologian Kate Bowler. I've listened to a number of uh, interviews with her in the last couple of months, read some of her uh, books, and she's got a new book coming out in February. But she's a theologian, and she gives a good picture of what this looks like uh, when she explains, she, she's, as a young mother, she was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. And she had a little son, And she says this, when I was really sick and worried about dying too young, I kept trying to picture how much my son would remember. I thought about him all the time. 
When do children develop long-term memory? How much am I in there? Then one day, my psychologist said something wonderful. He said, Kate, you're in there. The foundation is the part that doesn't show. The foundation is the part that doesn't show. Jesus doesn't call us because of what might be true about us. He calls us because what has always been and is whatever and what is forever true within us. You are created in the image of God. You are created in the image of God. First and foremost, your foundation, your baseline, your very beginning is the image of God in you. It's how our scriptures begin. And he created and he breathed life into them. I create in the image of me, says God. The thing is, our foundation gets buried by believing, it gets buried under believing the lies of the world, systems, structures, and institutions who begin by asking whether or not we are enough or have enough. The divine begins by reminding us that our foundation cannot be measured or weighed because our foundation is love. It's the image of the divine in us. And this love relentlessly seeks out you and me. You are invited. You are called. You are who Jesus is seeking out. I can remember back to when I was that naive 19-year-old who actually thought that I belonged as a child of the divine. But since then, I have had plenty of systems, institutions, and people tell me how that I am not enough. They've told me how not enough I am. And if I'm honest, far too many times I bought the lie of the systems, the structures, and of the voices of others that have said you're not enough. Maybe you've bought that lie too. Which is why we need this reminder, this calling, this invitation, which is for all people, beginning with supposedly the unlikely and least likely. Walker Harbor Church, welcome to a new kind of community, ushering in a new kind of kingdom, which is of eternal worth and is never-ending. You are called. You are invited. Because you are created by God. And all he's doing is gathering up his kids and speaking into them that which is truest within. Calling out our foundations. Clearing the manure that has been piled up on top of who we are. That's the invitation for us. What a picture we have when Jesus calls these fishermen 
and then we're going to keep going and we're going to see more mishmash of humanity with the other disciples that are called. Why would he call these people? Because at the very core, at your very core, you're a child of God. And we're just being invited to learn or relearn our very foundation. To say, yes, I will follow the Father, my Father, the King, into the new kingdom. That has begun. It's not complete. But we get to participate. We're called. You're called. Too many times people said, well, I, I, I'm a Christian, but I don't know if I'm called. Yep, too late. You're called to walk in the ways of God. That you and I would listen to the one voice of our Creator who tells us who we are so invites us where to go. Follow me. Follow me. Such a simple invitation, but it was revolutionary and so disruptive to the world then as it is now. Gracious God, I thank you. I bless you, God. calling me, for calling each person here. No matter what our background, no matter what our history is, that the world, the systems, the structures, and people love to use that against us. Love to tell us who we are not. Gracious God, may we hear your voice. May we sense your presence. May our hearts rumble at the sound of you telling us who we are. And may we hear that call from you today. Follow me. May there just be an eruption of response from us here today. Yes. Yes, I will follow you. I bless you, God, for loving us, taking care of us, calling us, and collecting us here today. It's not an accident. It's a calling that you're doing in and through us here today that we would say yes and be your body, be your church be your kids. We bless you for it. And we offer you our thanks, our worship, our all-inness through song, through prayer, through all of it. We do this in the name of Christ. Amen.